Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to three people in the United States about what's going on around the politics of protest and the politics of policing. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Today we're joined by Adam Getachu, who we've spoken to in the past, Gary Gerstel, who we've spoken to regularly in the past, and we're delighted to welcome Jason Perez. Jason and Adom are both based at the University of Chicago, where they study the politics of protest and the politics of race, among other things, but they're both also active in movement politics. They're not both in Chicago at the moment, as we'll hear. Gary is normally based in Cambridge, England, where he's Professor of American History. At the moment, he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jason, maybe we could start with you. Do you want to just tell us where you are and also what your experiences have been, some of them, in the last couple of weeks? I'm in Chicago. My experiences have been that, you know, I've been doing protests. They've been fairly intense. I know, at least for myself, I think the biggest thing was just like being in awe of what people were doing in Minneapolis. And I think like once the police station burned down, that was just kind of like, wow, we're like in a really different moment, space, time. And People are far ahead of what other folks think is possible and not possible. And then in the streets, you know, like, you know, at least our mayor in Chicago put out this order saying, hey, you know, basically that the police were going to be friendly. They weren't going to disperse folks. We're going to let folks protest, you know, and, you know, once we got downtown, that wasn't the case at all. The police were doing things that police do. They were super violent. They were like, you know, arresting this one young woman for, um, you know, she was writing with like a a dry erase marker, fuck 12 on a police car, you know, and so she was being arrested for that. And so we have this practice of like de-arresting folks. So we de-arrested her, but like the police were just really, really into the idea of arresting her. Like it wasn't just like a procedure for them. Can I ask, did it feel militarized? You know, it's one of these questions about this. Um, oh yeah, it's always so the, the mayor made the so, proclamation, but yeah, um, I, yeah, it, it's always militarized. And I also want to throw out, you know, like, and if you ever get a chance to watch Eyes on the Prize, the documentary on like the civil rights movement, the Black Freedom Movement, you know, when they're starting the Freedom Summer, you see in Mississippi they have a tank. I mean, militarized is not like a new thing, you know, and this is just police being police and. They, you know, they had the full uniform, they had the full regala, and then um, more importantly, they were just like knocking heads and like busting people. So, yeah. And the mayor's proclamation, what kind of weight did that have then in this context? I mean, the police I, it, serve I, the mayor in some context, don't they? 
Yeah, I think it's one of those things, especially like with quote unquote, like mayors who call themselves progressives, you know, and want to like distinguish themselves from Trump, you know, so I think they want to be able to say, hey, we support your First Amendment, we support the right to protest, this is how social change happens, this is how real social change happens. So they want to be able to say yes to that and, and make it seem like they're supporting that while bringing out the full force of the police and while also being enabling of the police and letting them do what they want to do. You know, like Chicago, somewhere where there was like over a thousand arrests of protesters and people are still arrested. You know, like I was doing bond watch you know, in Chicago and a lot of cities, we have like bond funds where we support people getting out and you see the various charges and you have people who get like upcharged with like various things that and you can just kind of see the shock on their face all of a sudden when they get charged with a much higher, you know, quote unquote crime versus like what they were actually there for, which was protesting and then being out past curfew protesting. And Adam, just tell us where you are and, and how the last couple of weeks have been for you. I'm in Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And Boston has been quieter, I would say, than Chicago and many other cities. I went to a protest the very first weekend of major protests. So I guess now 10 days ago. And, you know, I will say that I was in New York after Eric Garner. It was one of the biggest protests around Black Lives Matter that I witnessed or have been part of. It was a really big crowd, very diverse racially and intergenerationally. And I think that's something we should talk about in terms of the historical analogies to 68. I think it's quite different in that sense. But it started out very peaceful. The march began in Dorchester, largely black community. And then it ended up in the middle of the city at Boston Commons, where the state house is. And, you know, the police actually were very absent for most of the march and the rally. But as the sun went down, they began circling the crowd with cars and motorcycles. And um, eventually, this led to a kind of escalation with the protesters. I left at that point. But, you know, soon after protesters there were tear gassed. I think that night around 50 to 60 people were arrested. And I think that's also been a central part of the story of the last couple of weeks. And is seeing the kind of escalation of the police, really. And it's been hard, I think, for critics to maintain the story of rioting and looting, et cetera, in the face of the kind of violence that police officers and, you know, now other forms of the military, the National Guard, et cetera, have been involved in. Jason, you said that uh, Minneapolis, in a way, led on this. And what happened in Minneapolis then led to similar movements and protests in other cities. So Minneapolis is in some ways in this context, and maybe you can help us understand the broader context, is ahead also in some of the politics around what's been called the defund the police movement. And that fundamental question touches on the question of mayors and their authority. Who pays for this? Who can actually stop it? In Minneapolis, as I understand it, there was a vote and it was passed to defund the police. So can you tell us just a little bit about the, the defund movement? Because I think a lot of people, this is the first time they've really come across it. Give us a bit of history of it, and then maybe we'll get into the now. How long has the yeah. defund movement been I mean, around? I, how the organizations in Minneapolis that are working on it, so especially like Black Visions that reclaimed the block, and how the elected officials understand it is they did more than just defund, they disbanded the police. So they're going to yeah, need... Yeah, and that's, that's in a way one of my questions. Will, yeah, so... Does defund um, mean disband? Yeah. 
Well, no, I mean, it can, you know, it's a big enough de- demand, so it can mean take $1 out of the budget or all the way up to disband the police, which has its own complications. And, and there is a libertarian version or more right-wing version of this um, that pushes for this. So, you know, Camden also disbanded their police and then brought in a bunch of surveillance and a bunch of other outside police forces and private police forces. So there's like that kind of version of it. And then there is a progressive or socialist or more radical version of it, which is what is being fought for and what has happened in Minneapolis, which, you know, wants to defund, disband, and then invest those resources in um, things that actually get to the root of harm in communities, conflict in communities, you know, violence in communities, and actually fixes those things, you know. And, and the idea being that police is is a tool of class oppression, but it's also if your only source of resolving violence and, and conflict in communities is police, then that is basically a racist in- institution in practice. But the the beginnings of the defund movement or whatever, or at least for me, it's easier just to call it abolition. It's a modern form of abolition in relation to what we're doing today, you know, of prison abolition, police abolition, organizing wise comes out of the work of critical resistance and other like black feminist organizers, and then grows into what a lot of the work that Black Lives Matter did, BYP 100 has done, movement for black lives in general, in its last iteration, you know, and, and you see it more so in the organizing form, though. It was always movements to divest from police and invest in our communities. And I think an interesting story that's maybe being missed, at least for Minneapolis and all those elected officials there, Minneapolis was one of the few places just to think the year before or two years before that actually had a successful divest from police, invest from police campaign versus the opposite that's happened in, let's say, places like New York City or even in Chicago, where we lost our No Cop Academy fight. Yeah, I was going to ask, because one question is, is the what we've seen in Minneapolis exceptional or not? I mean, a lot of people were surprised. <laughs> but as you say, there's a, you know, there's a democratic mandate for this now. Does yeah. this suggest that this is a moment where there really is a possibility that where Minneapolis leads, others could follow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Politically, I think it is possible, right? I think everyone who calls themselves a socialist or progressive as an elected official and then people pushing community organizations, movement organizations, pushing for stuff, that should be the spectrum that they're on. You know, like I have an organizer bias, I've been organized for a while. So I I do think that past campaigns that you've done and like the organizing muscle that you have and the experience that you have matters and really determines on how well you can push a campaign. I think the organizations in Minneapolis have... On the ground, they knew how to relate to a spontaneous rebellion happening, and they knew how to respond to it in a way that didn't co-opt it, but actually used that energy to push the agenda that those folks wanted. And I think other cities are going to have to figure out how to do that in their organizing communities and also you know, know how to push a defund the police campaign amongst the legislature, amongst their local city councils and, and, and state under state boards in order to make something like this happen. And also while coupling it with bans on private police and bans on private surveillance, right? We, we don't want no more police, but then also the rise of millionaires and billionaires being able to buy up or all the white neighborhoods being able to buy up private security firms and things like that. So, Adam, is it the case that the way that the police are funded is different from other kinds of funding at this level because, again, seen from the outside, it looks like part of the political drive here is there's something fundamentally unaccountable 
about police funding. It's not subject to some of the democratic checks that you might expect. It's almost automatic. And the license that the police seem to feel that they have may stem in part from that unaccountability. Is that part of this story or am I misreading it? Well, I would say, you know, one background story of the both the rise of abolition as a political project and these specific campaigns is that in the last 30 years, you know, a period we associate with kind of state shrinkage, neoliberalism, disinvestment from public goods, especially in education, you've seen a kind of ongoing increase in police spending. I mean, even this year, in the kind of aftermath of the coronavirus, where many state agencies are are faced with huge budget shortfalls, cities are were planning on increasing spending for police. For instance, in Washington, D.C., the mayor has said that contractual obligations for state employees, wage increases that would have amounted to $10 million will not happen at the same time that there's a projected budget increase for the police of $18 million. So I think it's partly what has been so galvanizing about this moment is, especially after three months of the kind of pandemic and of a growing sense that the very basic public necessities that we need, we don't have, right? Um, that has led to a kind of deep questioning about the kind of the normalcy of of kind of ongoing increases for police spending. I think there's also, I mean, this coming out of movement context where this fight didn't start this year, but has been a kind of ongoing project really since the late 1990s, and then increasing or with an uptick since the movement for Black Lives five or six years ago, is also the sense that this growing expenditure has not really helped communities where, you know, violence persists. So on the whole, it's true that in the last 30 years, there's been a decline in crime rates in cities. But in places like the south and west side of Chicago, in cities like Baltimore, homicide rates and other forms of violence persist, right? So it's also the case that the kind of forms of violence that people are experiencing in their communities have not been really aided by the kind of increased police presence. And in fact, in, in a lot of cases have been exacerbated by police presence. So even on police's own sort of metrics of success, they've kind of failed. Like in Chicago, up until 2016, you know, the police solved or cleared 29% of homicides. The last year was the first time it was above 50%. So I think it's on their own terms, they've also failed. I think another kind of major source of funding and is the amount of money cities pay for police misconduct and police wrongdoing. You know, we've had all these conversations about budgets in this kind of context of defunding the police. So many cities are spending 20 to 40% of their budgets, of their general unrestricted funds on policing. This does not count how much money is being spent on police misconduct cases. So in just two months, the first two months of 2018, Chicago paid out $20 million in police misconduct. In a 10-year period, you know, they spent half a billion dollars on police misconduct cases. So it's also that the city ends up paying for their wrongdoings, basically. And police unions have been powerful, powerful advocates for their members, again, in a context in which 
other public sector unions, power has waned dramatically. Jason, what you said was so interesting about the other context for this, which is we're also living in a climate where there is a strong drive to technologize policing. I've just read Ram Emanuel's account of his time as mayor of Chicago. And one of the things he really boasts about... Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, I said, I'm sorry for you having to read Ram's book. Uh, In that book, he is really proud of Chicago's lead in what he calls predictive policing, you know, which is this University of Chicago. You you probably... um, Leaving aside that specific example, there are two things going on. There's the violence that we're seeing, which is very recognizable, you know, it's historically recognizable. And then there's the risk that this doesn't empower the kind of movements that you're talking about. It empowers the move towards the technological version. So as I understood you, it is crucial that this is a kind of two-pronged attack, right? You can't just move from direct violence and allow the door to open to the tech companies, right? You've got to take them both on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the place I work at Action Center on Racing Economy, that this is kind of like our big, big worry. Take, for example, GEO is a private prison corporation. They did a lot of the ICE detention um, stuff. And so as they saw like coming bans for private prisons and they try to make this shift saying, hey, we're for mass incarceration reform and police reform. You know, we don't want people in jail. So we've set up this whole thing where you can be at home and in jail. Like we'll have the monitor bracelet, we'll have the thing, we'll have this. And there, all these companies are trying to make make these pivots that they're like, and, you know, it's kind of under the thing of like smart reform and like smart tech reform, you know, where it's like, you know, we don't want to build. And even like the closing of Rikers was part of this kind of rhetoric where then these tech companies step in and then they say, hey, we can figure out how to still monitor, surveil. And it's, you know, it's a form of a community and at home incarceration. So, I mean, we have to have these bans, but we also have to understand how these companies are manipulating folks. And a lot of the big data police tech poses itself as the solution to the racial injustice that happens within policing, it will be able to stop police brutality. You know, they claim all these things. And um, of course, none of these things are true. But I think more what's even scarier is, is that Silicon Valley loves these kind of companies. They invest in these kind of companies and they profit off of these kind of like pushes in regards to when you see defunding and calls for reform. And if, if that is part of the struggle, is it possible to do that at the local level? I mean, the, the defund the police and abolition, there are versions of it that make sense city by city. If you're taking on the power of big technology corporations, new forms of incarceration being financed by Silicon Valley, does that have to be a kind of national politics or can it still be done city by city? Yeah, I, I think a national politics, but then I think this is also, and speaking to what um, Adam had brought up before, which is that we also need organized labor to be far stronger. You know, we need diminished power of police associations, and we need a much stronger worker power, and we need stronger worker tech power. And I think you're seeing like a radicalization of workers in Silicon Valley in these kind of tech fields because they see how horribly these products are being used. You need one part that. But then also you do need to nationalize the fight that says that, like, you know, we can't use these surveillance technologies in this way. You can't use surveillance tech and you can't, you know, allow for the private military or police firm like in our communities. 
Um, but I would definitely say it's a both and local and national and then also, you know, labor, you know, like putting an emphasis on organized labor. Aidan, we're going to talk to Gary Gerstlin a bit about some of the historical possible parallels and also disanalogies here. But you mentioned that just your experience of the, the protests you were on, but some of the other things we've been talking about here, there is a broader demographic and some movements that might have seemed in the past not to have a mass appeal, maybe in this moment, are reaching out. Is that your sense of it? That across these different kind of themes, I mean, we're talking about forms of politics that um, might have seemed relatively niche. They're not in this moment. Is it likely to last? Well, I think this has been one of the most shocking things about seeing defund the police become a kind of mantra of this moment. Again, you know, just six years ago, that was certainly that's been a conversation, as Jason has been saying, among activists and organizers um, who had been pushing this agenda in you know, a variety of ways. But the idea that this could become a kind of mantra of a wider political project and of a broader political mobilization is really surprising. I think, though, the ways that it has come up and has been mobilized obviously has also kind of been in a much more limited form than what Jason has been talking about. So what cities are calling defunding the police is really minimal, right? You know, in Los Angeles, the mayor is talking about $150 million of savings, not actual cuts from the budget, right? And this is what's being called defunding. So so I guess one thing to say is that not everyone on the street who says defund the police is on the same page, obviously, about what that means. And that creates, of course, lots of opportunities for elected officials to appear to be on the right side of this moment without making the kinds of commitments it would require and investing in a kind of long-term political project of transformation. So I think I remain as as worried about that form of co-optation or appropriation as I do about the kind of technologization of police, which is definitely already happening. Jason, can you sketch out for people who would be unfamiliar with this idea, particularly maybe outside the United States, and might have the obvious response that if you abolish the police, what creates order in your community? And you talked about, you know, divestment, but also investing in other areas. Can you just give us that vision? I mean, what what does it look like? Be as utopian as you like. What does it look like? <laughs> in its, yeah, no, for sure. Its, I'm uh, a, you know, uh, where yeah, does the yeah. order come from? Where does the order come yeah, from? When the yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in ADAM, we can definitely jump into because I'm, I'm far more of an abolition realist than an abolition okay. imaginer or, or utopian. Right. I mean, it, okay, give us the realist version, even better. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if my peers would say it's better. I think it just at a practical level, it's, you know, a majority of police calls, calls that come into the police, right, are for things that are not violent related at all, right? So you wouldn't, you know, you on a, on a really practical level, when you call 911, it's a nonviolent call, you would have a social worker, right? And it would be a social worker who also cannot take your kids away from you or things like that, right? If it's a violent act, they have programs called violent interrupters where they come in, let's say when there's shooting between folks, they try to deescalate the situation. A lot of times people know that other acts of violence, when when it's coming to street organization violence, other people will retaliate right away. And, you know, you pay people to be 
peacemakers are among those folks. Those programs have shown to be very effective in regards to taking care of something like as practical as gun violence. I would always argue that most of the solutions that we have for abolition, we already have. They're just chronically underfunded, right? Like in, in Chicago, the violence interruption program only has about $10 million compared to the amount of money that the police have, right? So it's just literally taking that money and putting it into programs that work and have been shown effective. And actually, I would say, speaking more to a right-wing audience that want law and order, this is how you... I mean, I don't believe in the farce of law and order, but this is how you get it. You get it by, you know, investing in programs that have actually shown to bring down crime, bring down violence. I think another way of just imagining it is that, you know, in Chicago, there's a suburb called Naperville or Wilmette, right? Or if you just look at any middle to upper class area, right? And they have a version of abolition many times where they don't call up the police for every single issue. You know, like you don't always have to look over your back about everything. And that's because they have fully funded schools. They have fully funded like parks. They have fully funded social services. And if the things that aren't funded aren't fully funded is because people have enough money because they have good jobs and they have good housing and they're able to pay for that. So, you know, visions and practices of abolition are there, it's usually just only allowed for rich people. And so we're saying that it shouldn't be just for rich people to have safe lives. And when there's moments of conflict and violence, that they're able to handle it in a way where people don't get locked up and put in cages, that should be available for everybody. And then I think at a more practical level, too, is there's things called restorative justice. There's things called transformative justice, where when people do real harms, like when people do murder, when people do acts of, of sexual violence, there is ways where, for sure, they may not be directly in the community, but there's ways they can be accountable to the harm doers, to the survivors. And sections of New York do that at a formal level, even at a governmental level, but it's really small scale. And again, these are just programs that we need to bring up to scale. And in Chicago, they do restorative justice, but they need to be brought up to scale and also not have any connection to police and carceral apparatus or any threat of being locked inside of a cage or things like that. And that's at a practical level, I feel like that's how you do abolition. In the Scandinavian countries, they've had a form of a formal abolition movement, you know? And so that's why you see policing and even what they nominally call a prison, but in the United States, we wouldn't call that a prison, but looks how it looks, right? So they, they didn't necessarily get rid of the institution of policing and of prisons, right? But it led to a radical transformation of it because they had a formal penal abolition movement that was able to really capture the imagination and then change the politics of what we think about of, of rehabilitation, transformation, and um, accountability when harm and violence is done. So I just wanted to put that out there as like, um, and there's a book called Politics of Abolition that people can pick up and see also that's a different type of point, and especially in the, in the European context, just for folks out there. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So we intended to do this podcast in two parts. First of all, to get some immediate reflections from Jason and Adon about their experiences. But then also, we wanted to take a step back and look at some of the historical parallels. These kinds of protests, this kind of politics has a deep history in the United States. And we've talked to Gary Gerstel in the past about the role of the police state in American politics too not at the city level, not at the national level, but at the state level. So Gary, if you look at what's going on now, which are the historical parallels that come to mind for you? Some people have mentioned 1968, some people have gone further back. 
What's the one that really springs to mind? Uh, 1968 works in part, but also 1934 to 1936, a great labor uprising resonates more to me. And let me say a few words about that. I think what's going on in the United States today is rather extraordinary. There's an uprising going on. It's an exogenous shock to the American political system. These are mass protests that begin outside the political system, but then force those inside the political system to contemplate a degree of change they had been unable to imagine before. These moments are, I would say, rare in American politics, and they are crucial because the American national federal system is set up as a series of checks and balances to block dramatic, overwhelming change. And so it's very hard to generate this degree of change from within the American electoral system. When this change comes, it comes first from the outside, from the streets, from protests, and then it has a secondary component, and that is when uh, portions of what we might call the political establishment, the elite, the regime, whatever we want to call it, begins to rethink their role in the regime of which they are an integral part, and some of those go over to the other side. And what's intriguing to me about this moment is that we have both ingredients. We have these massive protests on the street beyond, I think, anyone's imagination in terms of the degree of support, both in the demonstrations themselves and the degree of popular support evident in opinion polls. And we have also seen a break within elite forces in American society of people going to the other side in ways they have been more reluctant to do. The reason I'm drawn to 1934, really 1934 to 1937, is that this was a moment of great labor uprising in American society and American life. There was a contagion of strikes, people refusing to work, confrontations with employers. That to me parallels what's going on now more closely than what happened in 1968. 1968 happened, I think we're referring mostly to the protests in light of Martin Luther King's assassination early April 1968. And that was a story of intense, emotional, raw anger in about 160, 170 cities, very violent, very angry. And also it sparked, I would say, forces of law and order that turned the moment of protest against the protesters and had a role in electing Richard Nixon, Republican and law and order candidate, president of the United States in the fall of 1968. The example of the 1930s is different. The example of the 1930s is a labor uprising, contagious in the, I know it's probably problematic to use the word contagious in the, in the context of a pandemic. What I mean by that is that support for workers on strike in a society traditionally hostile to workers going on strike spread everywhere and compelled Roosevelt, who was president during this upheaval, 1934 to 1936, to turn left and to respond to the protesters on his left and to put in place a new deal that was considerably more radical than the one that he had put in place prior to that time. So what we have there is an example of a successful effort on the part of street protesters, in that case, workers, closely paralleling what's going on with Black Lives Matter protesters and their allies today that actually succeeded in bending the Democratic Party to their will and having at least part of their set of demands encoded into law. And the New Deal that we remember is a New Deal that was fashioned 
out of that massive protest, that exogenous shock to the system that compelled a kind of response that in ordinary circumstances, the American political system has trouble mustering. Adam, do you do you see historical parallels here? Do you think we're in a, a new world? Well, I'll start by saying what I think seems unprecedented from the 60s moment. You know, one, as I mentioned, just anecdotally from my own experience and generally, as you see from the crowds, it's a, a really integrated sort of group of people who've taken to the streets. You know, we've talked about large cities like Chicago, but these are protests that are happening in small towns in places where there are very few black residents. So a friend from North Dakota was telling me that they are having protests in his hometown. So I think the scale and depth of this is really, really unprecedented. And with that, the level of public support. I mean, I think many of us were shocked when opinion polls showed that a majority of Americans believed that burning down a police station was fine. You know, that was really shocking. You know, in some ways, I think we live in the world and this is a moment that's responding to the world built from the legacies of 1967, 1968. And what I mean by that is that set of uprisings had generated a certain kind of elite response, the Kerner Commission, which was pathbreaking in naming racism as the primary cause of, of the uprisings, laying out a, a pretty you know ambitious program of reform, of redistribution, along with increased policing, of course. But how that uh, report eventually gets taken up, in part because Nixon would win in 68, is that the policing part of it got taken up, of course, and then the broader vision of social and economic transformation did not get taken up. And the world that the movement for Black Lives is responding to is the world that comes out of that and the kind of 40, 50-year bipartisan consensus on policing that emerged from that moment. I think there's also two things, I think, specifically about Black politics that seem really interesting from that moment. One is, of course, that period of the late 1960s is the first emergence of Black electoral politics in the wake of the civil rights movement, right? You're seeing your first first generations of Black mayors beginning to emerge and then elected officials. Um, the movement for Black lives emerges at the kind of high point of the success of Black electoral politics, the election of Barack Obama. And it's been very interesting in this moment that some of the most intense conflicts are happening in cities run by Black mayors and Black women mayors in particular, Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C. So, you know, David, you talk a lot about generational politics and the kinds of generational shifts or, or breaks we might be experiencing. And I think there's a very particular one in Black politics in which Partly what's being litigated and relitigated is about what the kind of legacies of the civil rights movement were, what its limits were, and partly how that's playing out is this question about the relationship or lack of a relationship between electoral and extra-institutional or protest politics. Um, the final thing I'll say is I think another piece of this that's been really remarkable to see is, of course, all the global solidarity in the UK and all around the world, really. And, you know, I think there's something about kind of Black struggles in the United States that have this global residence. Um, Brandon Terry talks about the exemplarity of the civil rights movement. And 
that is in some ways one thing that feels resonant with that earlier moment. And we can talk about why that is, but it's been, again, a remarkable thing to see how this occasions not only solidarity, but efforts directed at local struggles in, in various countries around the world. Gary, so in a way that touches on the comparison that you made uh, with the late 1930s, and you used the word contagion. And it is true that this kind of politics does spread in a very different way than conventional representative democratic politics. It doesn't operate to the same rhythms, not the same electoral cycles. But the current moment, both nationally and globally, is contagious because, in part, of the way in which information spreads. I mean, this is a social media, an internet age form of politics. In the earlier example, how did it spread relative to now? And do you think the way that it has spread now, the way in which news feeds off news and people's responses can spread incredibly rapidly is different? Or should we be wary of thinking this is all just, you know, this is the internet version? Oh, well, social media is, is definitely new, but it's it's not the first time that technology has convulsed politics. Roosevelt was the first radio president, and that was his preferred mode of communication because the newspapers were over 90% hostile to him. So he became a master of the radio and labor leaders became masters of the radio. So this became a mechanism of communication that was that was brand new, that younger people were quicker to grasp the potential of and used to great advantage. And also in terms of striking workers, they used cars <laughs> and automobiles to spread word of strikes. They had what they were called flying squadrons, which were formations of cars that would speed from one neighborhood to another, one city to another to communicate news of what was going on. And as strange as that may seem to us now, uh, this was still in the young age of the automobile civilization, a strikingly original form of communication. And also using the cultural apparatus, there's an equivalent to the popularity of defund the police that happened in the 1930s. The most popular play on Broadway in 19. 19- 36 was a play called Strike with an exclamation point after it. This ran for more performances than any other play in Let It Register with us that one of the most popular ways of communicating defund the police is not through high tech, but through low tech, which is getting out paint sprayers, which have been around for a long time and, and painting that on city streets. I can see it in chalk all over the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I, I currently am. So I think what matters here is to think of how media are used creatively, how the cultural apparatus is used creatively, how certain moments open up possibilities for remarkably quick communication that had not existed before. And in that sense, I see a striking parallel between the 1930s and today. Adam, if you take Gary's 1930s example, which led to significant change at the elite level, the 1967-68 example, which led to some of the very significant changes you talked about, but also a reaction, kind of counter-reaction, including at the level of presidential politics. Of course, now it doesn't have to follow either of those examples. It could be completely different. But broadly speaking, do you have fears that the counter-reaction side of the late 1960s story is possible, indeed probable today? 
Yeah, I like Gary's 1935 um, analogy because it's a, it's a successful story. Um, so I hope this moment will be closer to that one. You know, I think on the one hand, it seems like it's been hard for Trump to play the law and order a role that Nixon did in the 60s, in part because he is an incumbent and this happened on his watch. So in fact, you've seen approval ratings for how he's handled this go down in the week of the most intense confrontations with the police, public support for you know, the military to come into cities went down by 13%. So it feels like right now at this moment, I mean, a lot can change. A lot has changed in a matter of weeks. It, it feels like that play is not yielding the kinds of results he had anticipated or had hoped for. And you also see this in the last couple of days in how cities are trying to shift tactics, right? So New York got rid of its curfew earlier than it had anticipated or had planned to. So you see a different kind of face of the response to the protesters being rolled out across the country. I think the bigger question, though, is how and in what way will the Democrats take up this call? Will they take it as a moment, really, of shifting tactics And I think right now it feels very mixed on that point. Of course, uh, national Democratic leaders, including Joe Biden, uh, the nominee, has publicly said they do not support defunding of the police. The Democrats did roll out a reform bill yesterday that, you know, in terms of what is being demanded, it really is, it's a very, very limited set of reforms. Would they have done that without this set of protests? I think the answer is no to that, you know, but how far it goes in terms of meeting the set of demands, I think is, is still quite wide. And I think part of the challenge in this moment is the kind of absence of mediating institutions, right? Like what is the vector through which protest politics gets channeled and becomes a force or a mechanism for generating policy and getting accountability on behalf of elected officials. You know, I think Jason had mentioned earlier the real absence of, you know, organized labor politics. That is a central story of the 1930s moment, of course. But what the kind of institutional, you know, mechanism of this mediation would be and can be in this moment, I think, is a real question. Of course, one way in which now is different, and Jason touched on it, but we, you know, to a surprising extent, we haven't really talked about it, which is this is happening against the backdrop of the pandemic. And you know, there is an immediate question in Europe, where I am, in, in the UK, where I'm in, UK is, is a laggard in the European story, but there is a feeling that the worst is past of the pandemic, and we're coming out of it. And then we're all waiting to see what happens later this year, whether there's a second wave. The United States is not necessarily past the worst of it. And in many places, infections are rising, deaths are rising, and now protests are spreading. And this is contagious politics in both senses of that word. Adam, do you do you have a fear that the protest story could yet still be subsumed by the pandemic story? So for instance, it, it allows a way back in for a kind of law and order narrative if it seems that the protests have spread the virus? Absolutely. I think one fear is that one way that Trump can spin this is if if there is a kind of another spike, there's a way to blame 
protesters for having been the kind of the vector of, of spread. So I think that is a real worry. You know, I think, though, it's, again, he is the a kind of master of rhetoric. He's able to spin of stories in his favor. But it's, again, hard to make that case, given how he refused to shut down the country for so long, right? He was the one who resisted any forms of shutdown earlier. He, he had vocally supported protesters to reopen the economy, of course, which were on a much smaller scale than this. But I think that is a real fear. And, you know, it's also a fear about for people who are coming out on the streets, right, uh, who were very worried about being vectors for the disease. And for some people has meant that they don't want to participate. You know, I think when when the shutdown started, there was so much conversation about the impossibility of politics in this moment and and people trying to figure out how we might do politics again. And the early period of the pandemic, especially around sort of labor-related disputes at, at Amazon warehouses, at vis-a-vis kind of the absence of protective equipment for various essential workers, there were these attempts to try to do protest in different forms, car caravans, etc. But, you know, the visibility and publicity of just taking the streets, there's kind of hasn't been something like that. So it's also hard to imagine how this set of actions could adapt and reorient themselves if, if we find ourselves in a context, again, where there's a kind of shutdown of the public sphere. Gary, how do you think Biden has handled it? And how do you think he will handle it? Well, let me let me first say before I get to Biden that I think Trump is in trouble in a way that he has not been for most of his presidency. I think the last two weeks have probably been the toughest stretch of his presidency. And, and the way in which 68 seems most relevant now is not in terms of the protests, but in terms of the trouble of a sitting president. Trump, like Johnson in 1968, has lost control of the narrative, has lost control of the bully pulpit, which presidents like to have, and appears much smaller and has been forced to retreat into a White House that looks smaller by the day and his power looks smaller by the day, surrounding it with miles and miles of fencing and concrete blocks. He's in his bunker, uh, scared to come out, and that message resonates really loudly. So whether this is the inflection point uh, that's going to doom him, you know, we thought we'd been there before, so that's hard to say. I'm not going to make an ironclad prediction. In terms of Biden, uh, he's coming out of his bunker more, which (laughs) I'm pleased to see. He has made some trips to Minneapolis, to Houston, to, to comfort the mourners in both places and the family of, of George Floyd. He gave a quite beautiful speech of healing, calling for activism in Philadelphia. I think that was late last week. He has the capacity to listen, to heal, an understanding of how to connect to the pain in the Black community, which I think is utterly beyond Trump's grasp, and he's beginning to show that now. I also think that it's hard to say how this is going to play out again, but the vice presidential selection process has shifted quite decisively in the last few weeks, as far as we can tell. Uh, It's not just that Amy Klobuchar is out completely because of her history as a prosecutor in Minnesota and in law enforcement, but it seems to me now that I don't know if Biden had been intending to do this, but I think the pressure on him to pick an African-American woman as his vice presidential candidate 
is on the table now with a kind of intensity that it had not been before. And it almost feels as though the question is not, will he pick an African-American woman, but which one will he pick? And I think he needs to go in that direction. He needs to to draw on the extraordinary mobilization, which as Adam rightly pointed out, is not just a black community mobilization, but a quite extraordinary mobilization across racial lines, generational lines. And we need to mention the name of Bernie Sanders in this context as well. Black Lives Matters has matured over the last five years and the revolt that Bernie Sanders began, which probably lies in Occupy Wall Street in 2011, has also matured over the last decade. And many of the people out there are people who are sympathetic to him. That has to be incorporated into the Democratic Party platform going forward. I think that Biden has already understood the need to bring the Bernie supporters in. I think he understands the need for profound links to the African-American community. On the other hand, he has come out against defunding the police, and he was a principal architect of the 1994 legislation under Clinton when he was senator to dramatically increase the possibilities for mass incarceration in the United States. So he is one of the architects of the carceral state, uh, one of the democratic architects of the carceral state. And how he manages that issue over the coming months seems to me to be crucial. And his candidacy is going to have to be about coalition politics. So he's going to have to draw in different people, but he's going to have to draw in the left. And here I mean the black left and the white left. And that energy is going to be necessary to propel him into the White House. And, And if he turns off that energy too quickly, or turns it off decisively, I think he'll be in trouble. Jason, I want to give you the last word on this. We, You've just heard that discussion about possible historical comparisons and trajectories here. There's a hopeful story. There's a less hopeful story. We've also got the trajectory of the Biden campaign. This is a time of hope, and this is a time of deep anxiety. Where are you on that balance? Is hope predominating now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm... I'm... Super hopeful. Thanks to the work that happened with Black Lives Matter, with Occupy, with the immigrant rights movement, you know, I think we have a lot of organizing experience, but we also have a lot of militant civil disobedience experience. And, you know, like the rooms that I'm in, the places that I'm at, everyone fully expects to escalate, escalate, escalate. And that's, you know, whether it's Trump or Biden in in the White House, you know, like we know that at a local level and a federal level. And I think people are willing to take that type of militant action in order to like really push defunding the police, getting us closer to abolition, but then also getting us closer to a meaningful democratic socialism. You know, like what's nice about this moment is, is that what Adam was saying before, we don't have to like do the car caravans as much. Like we can do real purposeful rent strikes. We can go after the people who want us to pay rent during a pandemic. We can go after all these different folks because we're willing to take the streets and we're willing to like do militant civil disobedience, you know? And so I'm, I'm all here for it. And so in that context, you say whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden, how much for you does it matter whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden? <laughs> You don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. Um, I, you know, I, I believe elections can be something where we can build power and, and a better world, but it can also be something that's just harm reduction. So obviously I want Biden um, and not Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
do you think the energy that Gary was talking about and the energy of the movements that you're involved in can be channeled to that end or is it now about something else? Oh, no, I think it's about something else at this point, right? That it's, I mean, it's definitely still, you know, working, you know, in Chicago, we have six socialist aldermen, we work with them, city council folks, like we work with them, and we need to support campaigns on a local level that gets socialists elected and, and progressives who support defunding police. But I think the real power, the real change is going to be, you know, on the streets, like, just two weeks before all this, Alex Vitel, you know, the end of policing, he was he put out an op-ed saying cut the New York NYPD budget by one billion, which is like only probably like one fifth of the NYPD budget, you know. And then three weeks later from that op-ed, we're at a point where a police department in a major city has just gotten disbanded. And the only difference is is that there's people who took to the streets, um, they were protesting. We have to keep that up direct action protesting gets the goods. Like we're not going to be able to have elected officials who are sympathetic with us actually being able to enact the type of changes that we want, which is, you know, defund the police and abolition and, you know, some semblance of democratic socialism. Thank you to Jason, Gary and Adam. You can find out more about Jason's work in our show notes or on Twitter at tppodcast underscore Adam's new book is called World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, and it is well worth a read. Next week, we're going to be talking to the historian Sarah Churchwell about the history of fascism then and now. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>